For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The King of Podcasts Radio Network proudly presents The Broadcasters Podcast, where we dive deep into the media industry headlines and dissect the digital disruption that diverges the masses into the new media counterculture and away from the media establishment. Here is the king of podcasts. It's Batman weekend, opening weekend for the Batman. Robert Pattinson's chance to go ahead and shock and awe the movie base like myself. I already have my ticket set up 11 p.m. at the Regal. I'm set to go tomorrow night. Some of you might be watching it tonight as I record this show. And some of you will be getting a chance to catch it as I record the program. But there are no spoilers in this because I haven't watched it. And I'm going to just tell you what I think is going to do, how well it's going to do, and how big of an impact it's going to have. There is nothing else in the month of March, basically, that is in front of this movie to really give it any traction, except for what, The Lost City on March, well, March 25th, I think? So, um, there might, I mean, you, you want to talk about having to go see a movie? If you're a subscription holder like I am, then I guess I'm going to have to wa- go watch the movie twice in the next month, because what else am I going to do? But I'm hoping it's going to be that really well. So the reviews have been going out there pretty positive. You're hearing a lot of buzz about it, and it looks like it's about as dark as the original as the Joker was Joaquin Phoenix. It has that kind of that the darkest sense of a superhero that we've had, which should totally line up with the Batman character we've always had. And, you know, I've asked myself and I asked my brother and I, you know, asked a few other people to rank the Batmans. The characters that have played the movie character, Black Batman, going back to the Joel Schumacher movies back in Tim Burton, the Joel Schumacher movies back in the 90s or 89, rather, to the 90s. And if I had to go and pick myself and, you know, you judge me if I'm wrong. Some people want to put Ben Affleck way up on that list. If it were me, Christian Bale's my number one, my number one. Michael Keaton is number two. Affleck is going to be third. And then, you know. I think after that, I don't even count Val Kilmer and George Clooney as part of the list. It doesn't matter. But I think that's where I put my list uh, so far. That's where I want to put things when I think to the Batman. And by the way, you know, I know Gotham was good. It wasn't bad. It was a lot. I actually liked the, all the uh, villains better than I liked the Batman character, the Bruce Wayne character. The young Bruce Wayne probably was too young to be a part of this whole thing to really enjoy him growing up with Alfred and trying to become the superhero he would soon become. It was just too early to do the Gotham series. When I really think about it, and I watched it all the way through, 
I just had characters that I like better than the ones that they had given me. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I thought they introduced some characters that were really cool in the mix. But they're going to do a TV series. We know about that as well. Like, I like the Catwoman in Gotham. I thought James Gordon was pretty good. The Penguin was great. And when I look at, you know, I thought Harvey Bullock was actually a pretty decent character. The Riddler was very good. Give a lot of credit there. I like Tabitha. I wasn't too big about Fish Mooney. There's a lot of others that I saw. I like Sophia Falcone. I like Poison Ivy. I thought Solomon Grundy's character was right, great, cool as well. Carmen Falco, I thought he was great. And there's others. But, I mean, to me, that's where I look at things all together. And, you know, it was an interesting series to watch back. But now they're going to go back to TV again. They're going to have the movie now. Let's see where things go when they move it forward. Starting things off, the Batman set to ignite the box office even without Russia. That's a story from The Rap and Jeremy Fuster. And, yes, the Ukraine story is still, even in the movies, has to be considered because the movie will not be shown in Russia which there's nothing else being done in Russia. They're taking Russia vodka off the shelves. They're doing all this other stuff about Russia and the Ukraine. And I'm not going to be talking about it. I'm not concerning myself about it. This is not a political show. I'm not going to talk about current events like that. Something that's so negative. I don't want to talk about it. And you're not going to be here. You're going to be Ukraine, Russia free on this program. After that little comment, that's all you're going to get. Now, here's what they're saying about Warner Brothers. Who's putting the movie out? For them, they are marking the return to releasing theatrically exclusive movies after all the studio's 2021 films were pushed to simultaneously be pushed out on HBO Max. We saw where Wonder Woman 1984 went. It did not do well. Godzilla vs. Kong, you know, probably got hurt from that. Then you have Suicide Squad. Then you had, you know, there's, there was a number, a number of others I could think of. You know, I think about the Sopranos movie, the prequel, and... You know, there was just things that you took away from even the Matrix as well, just did not do well by doing the simultaneous. But imagine if Batman was going to be put out simultaneous to streaming. Sure, some people might be happy about that, but the movie needs to be in the theaters. Like, I'm even me, I'm not even watching it on my regular screen. I'm watching on the, I don't have an IMAX where I'm at. I'd have to go drive out into downtown West Palm to go watch it, but that's going to be crowded as hell. Maybe I'll catch it on IMAX. I don't know. Maybe I'll do that. But there's what Regal has, the RPX. So better sound, better picture. That's the one I'm watching on tomorrow night. And all tracking points are going to say that this movie should go off to a strong start. Opening weekend projections for the Batman start at $150 million. $115 million. That would put it alongside Spider-Man's No Way Home as the only the second film since the pandemic to earn a domestic opening over $100 million. Warner Brothers themselves internally says they hope it's going to make $90 million. Look, I, I and I understand where people are coming from, where Spider-Man just blew off, blew the 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 wall the the roof off every movie theater with how well that did. But there's always the appeal of, of Batman. This is where I feel like, you know, the Christopher Nolan series of what they did with Batman and what they did more or less with Zack Snyder and the portrayal of Batman in the Justice League or Batman versus Superman, right? You know, 
the Batman character was not tarnished. It wasn't hurt by it. I don't think it was. The 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 essence of the character that it is, all they really was a change was really the Bruce Wayne character. But the consistency of what the character was with all the accoutrements, the car, the tools, the weapons, all of that, the voice still is there. As far as I'm concerned, Robert Pattinson now playing the role. You're getting a younger character now playing this that's coming in. And, you know, I give a little bit of credence to him thinking that, you know what, he can do okay. Because I think he's long removed from Twilight. And also for me, the movie that really made me stand out to think he might do really well was seeing him in Tenet. I thought him backing up John David Washington Tenet was actually very good. I enjoyed it. And he is so far removed. Twilight was what? 14 years ago. We're not going to stereotype him there. He did get himself in incredible shape for it. And I think the best thing they did with the trailers once the movie was going to get pushed back out in March and they started putting trailers back out, I say October, November, when they incorporated the Catwoman, Zoe Kravitz, when they added her into the mix, I think that dynamic made it better. And then we see other characters. We see Riddler involved and it's like, okay, we're getting somewhere here, but the movie looks really good. I'm really excited about it. Now, nobody's expecting the Batman to get no way home level numbers, but Batman has always constantly beaten pre-release numbers over the past year. So some people think it might get up to $160 million. The last two Batman films broke in their opening weekends over $160 million. The Dark Knight Rises and Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. And globally, the Batman, globally, they're expecting $225 million plus. It already earned $1.7 million opening day Tuesday in Korea the, for a new post-shutdown record for Warner Brothers. Special preview screenings on IMAX were also held on Tuesday, and they made $2 million off of that. So they say that, you know, they can make well over a quarter million dollars this weekend. China and Japan will be set for release on March 11th and March 18th, respectively. So, yeah, they're going to see what the, what the states do. What North America does and how well it kicks off there. In terms of the support, they're looking at the core demographic should be 18 to 35 year old males. Critics' reviews are strong, 85% Rotten Tomato score, and a lot of social media praise from early fan preview screenings. So, and the movie almost three hours, by the way. So, you know, hit the bathroom before you get in, okay? <laughs> That's where you're going to be at. And not to mention the best part for the Batman, not really much for the box office, but the Batman's going to get to go ahead and run with nothing in front of it. They're going to basically get three weeks or four weeks, most likely, to dominate the movie theaters until we get to Morbius on April 1st. So Warner Brothers has a lot of time. And this is what sucks. You know, is it mentioned this last week when we talked about the Batman last week. Are we going to start seeing that where the movie theaters are? They're only going to get the superhero movies, and those are going to get stretched out so much, and there's nothing else in its way. Like, there is nothing else showing that's really going to make any difference or any dent at all. Nothing has a chance to go up against Batman. Nothing that's already been out that's going to go up against that either. There's just not a chance. Now, the other story that's been very important about what's going on here is AMC Theaters which has made a comeback becoming a meme stock with getting their movies back up and open. 
you know, strong, aggressive marketing campaign and getting back out there, getting the movies. Spider-Man went on the way home, helped them to get to landmark numbers, getting themselves back in great sales condition and in condition as a company, getting themselves back up. Well, something else that came up now that's really standing out to people is that AMC theaters, if you have one where you are, they're going to charge more for you to watch Batman. Yeah, this was big and it's now variable pricing that's being talked about. I don't know if this is good or not, but, you know, it's actually done in other countries, believe it or not. Adam Aaron, CEO of AMC Entertainment, says that the movie will cost more than other movies when it opens this week. You are getting almost a three-hour movie, so they're trying to see what they can make off the money, off the movie itself, and what they're going to get in terms of offering extra perks to upsell and upcharge for a premium experience of watching the Batman. So Adam Aaron said during a webcast following quarterly earnings that currently our prices for the Batman are slightly higher than the prices we are charging for other movies playing in the same theaters at the same time. And the move falls a few years after it successfully raised weekend pricing above midweek levels at some of its U.S. locations. And here's what Adam Aaron makes a point of, and this is actually true. It's quite novel in the United States, but actually AMC has been doing it for years in our European theaters. In Europe, indeed, we charge a premium for the best seats in the house, as do just about all sellers of tickets in other industries. Sporting events, concerts, live theaters, examples. Considerable upside opportunity are ahead if they continue to be imaginative on pricing. So here's what you got. AMC, 12, AMC Empire 25 and Times Square, there are tickets for the Batman now. $18.99, a dollar more than tickets for Uncharted and Dog. Man, I don't even know how much my tickets are at Regal. I haven't even looked at that in a while. But this is why when you're seeing movie, when you're seeing tickets like that for $19, I'm watching my that movie and other movies, whatever I want for the month, for $21. I think it's 22 attacks. So I don't even worry about that. But yeah, you want to go see it tomorrow. Like, this is crazy. Book now. Okay, what's the pricing on it? Let me look at this here. I'm going to check the pricing real quick and see how much it is. So, okay, adult at my theater is $13.79. And you can buy up to 10 tickets. Child 1080, senior 1122. I guess the pricing just up where you are up north is just crazy. I guess that's what it is. So I'm paying $13 for tickets? Man, I don't realize it was so much now. I still remember the days when I went to AMC when it was back when I had it at the Cross County 8 back oh 25 years ago watching movies like Unlawful Entry and uh, I'm trying to think what else I saw there. Well, either which way, they used to have matinee shows before 6 o'clock and on the weekends we'd go there and we'd get it for like five seventy-five. dollars <laughs> like back in the day. That's some cheap movies right there. And we had a good old time with that. It was a really fun experience. But now it costs a lot more. So AMC also is talking about doing some more things. They're doing rounds of NFT giveaways linked to big films. They're going to start charging for them and taking commissions for sales on secondary markets. They want to start accepting payment in crypto and they want to launch a popcorn selling retail popcorn selling blitz and moving in the merchandise. And this weekend they're going to be selling a six inch tall Batman head popcorn holder. And Aaron says he hopes that's going to sell out. So, yeah, that's big, big. The other thing that's being talked about 
It's very early to talk about it, pretty premature. But we're around Oscar time, and now Batman is being considered one of the contenders for the 2023 Oscars. Clayton Davis of Riot.com talks about it, and he says that Matt Reeves' newest take on the Batman franchise, starring Robert Pattinson, Jeffrey Wright, Zoe Kravitz, Paul Dano, and Colin Farrell. The director co-writer along with Peter Craig delivers a dark take on the world's greatest detective as he battles Vidalins, the Riddler, the Penguin, and sort of, but not really, Catwoman. Receiving positive reviews from critics will this new take on the Crape Crusader land major Oscar attention, including Best Picture, which Black Panther in 2017 and Joker in 2019 did have nominations. But with a limited sense of what the rest of 2022 will have to offer, there are certainly two spots while considering worth considering for recognition, cinematography and original score. The camera works can be done by two-time nominee Greg Frazier, framing an intimate and tension-filled experience that only a master of his caliber can achieve. And they're talking about how his work really almost did well because it pushed him over the Oscar finish line for his nomination for Dune. So that's the same guy that did Dune, he did for this movie, which Dune was actually, they talk about the, the camera work was pretty pretty uh cool it definitely made a big difference from the original dune right and then the music composer is michael giacchino he's no stranger to oscar world he won oscar nominations yeah and oscar nominations for pixar outings ratatouille in 2000 up and up in 2009 and for up he won the academy award he's also been back to the ceremonies of nominee despite worthy outings like inside out in 2015 rogue one a star Wars story in 2016 coco in 2017 and jojo rabbit in 2019 but the batman score they say could be defining his career shepherding a bombastic richness that feels signature and only adds to every frame presented all this is very is like utterly speculative and they also mentioned in the story that the critic here was very taken by Kravitz and Dano's performances, but they don't seem to be the type of showy work that they could tend to fall for the Oscar critics, the potential judges. The film's production design, sound and visual effects are well within arm's reach. The major categories like picture, directing, lead actor for Robert Pattinson, and adapted screenplay do, do not seem attainable, although social media will attempt to frame a narrative saying otherwise. However, you should expect it on multiple top tens of next year from some critics and a few regional awards decided in a significant way, providing false hope for the fandom. Hey! It has a chance to get some awards. Maybe not going to get the the major outings because, you know, it's not one of those. It's it's critically acclaimed to a point. I'm actually getting a lot of good critical acclaim, acclaim for a superhero movie. But they're making those movies so well. And they have good writing. And, I mean, you can just see that. Look, I still go back and look and say, man. The Joker they did in 2019 and Joaquin Phoenix and, you know, Todd Phillips, that was just a standout. And, like, that was just, you go away from that movie, you just get goosebumps. That movie was just so solid, and that crowd was so into it. Man, what a character. And, you know, if you wanted to give me a sequel of any movie right now, you give me another Joker. I'm all in. Like, Joaquin, put the put the uh, the suit back on, get the makeup back on. Let's go again. Or put him in, or put him another Batman, or something, please. Now, going back to past Batmans, so you have 
1989 version with Tim Burton starring Michael Keaton was nominated and won for Best Art Direction and Set Decoration, which is now called Production Design. And then there was Batman Returns that scored mentions for Best Makeup and Visual Effects. And fans often cite the snub of Michelle Pfeiffer's take on the villainous Catwoman for supporting actress as one of the biggest blunders of the Academy. But then the same year, they did give the Oscar Best Supporting Actress trophy. They gave the Oscar to Marissa Tomei for her work as Mona Lisa Vito, my cousin Vinny, in 1992. Well, you know, she you got to love her in that movie. How do you cannot love Marissa Tomei? Let me just say that. Then the Oscar nominations continue to come in where Joel Schumacher and a new Bruce Wayne slash Batman played by Val Kimmer and Batman forever landed three nominations in 1995 for cinematography, sound and sound effects editing and lost to one best picture winner and another nominee Braveheart and Apollo 13. Yeah, you're not going to win there. Also kiss from a rose by seal was not nominated because it wasn't eligible for the original song category because it was on a second album. But the song did go on to be the 1996 Grammy for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and male pop vocal album selling 8 million copies. Something about these superhero movies, they make some money and they do have some critical acclaim. Then you have Batman and Robin with George Clooney taking up the mantle. Critics criticize and while they consider it the worst cinematic outing for the comic book hero. And some people have a cult following to it because of the performances of Mr. Freeze by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Poison Ivy by Uma Thurman. Then you got the Christopher Nolan trilogy of Batman giving the franchise a gritty reset. Batman Begins got best for cinematography by Wally Pfister, losing to Dion Beebe for Memoirs of a Geisha. Dark Knight changed the game, not just for superhero genre, but the Academy Awards themselves. The movie grossed more than $1 billion worldwide, highest grossing film of 2008, as also the fourth highest grossing film of all time domestically. And Ledger's turn as a Joker is considered one of the most villainous performances in cinematic history, ultimately winning a posthumous Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, only in the second in history following Peter Finch for Network. That's another great movie. The film landed an impressive eight Oscar, Oscar nominations, but was notoriously snubbed for Best Picture and Director. Hey, Christopher Nolan, man, come on. That was really good. Dark Knight was fantastic. Really, really good but is still widely credited for the Academy's decision to expand the number of Best Picture nominees from 5 to 10 happening the following year. Dark Knight Rises 2012 didn't get any residual goodwill. It was shut out of the Oscar nominations. That sucks. And then the DCEU has had some different things that have gotten some, some critic snubs or some nominations. So you have Suicide Squad in 2016, Thrashed by critics, but won Oscars for makeup and hairstyling. Joker, Todd Phillips directing, Joaquin Phoenix starring, only shows a young Bruce Wayne, but landed the most Oscar nominations of a respective year with 11. Ultimately winning two for Best Actor and for Original Score. Best Actor, Joaquin Phoenix. Well earned, my friend. That is good stuff. So, Batman looks great. I'm looking forward to it. And that's what we needed. We needed to see that really start out well. It's amazing. You get to see the movie getting charged more. It's making some, uh, you know, Oscar nomination chatter already. So, like, that is all really good. 
Now, before I was going to talk about the Batman earlier this week, I just figured everything was just going so good for Batman and needed to get the praise and some of the attention that it was getting. So, yeah, I start off the Broadcasters podcast with it again. Well, why not? But the one story I will also talk about that I felt like needs to get some play on the program is Playboy and the new documentary series, The Secrets of Playboy. LA Times talks about this. It was a 10-part docuseries now that's come on from A&E that is, promises to, quote, explore the hidden truths behind the fable and philosophy of the Playboy empire through a modern lens. It's a 10-week docuseries to basically cancel Hugh Hefner in his death and to also take down those that were supporters of Playboy. And I feel like they're kind of just tarnishing the image of what how progressive in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, how important Playboy was. Well, for men anyway. And really just for pop culture in general and just for society in general. I think they did a lot for a lot of people. And it's really a shame that Playboy isn't the same as it was. But that branding, that name, that bunny still means something. If it was, you know, if you could do something with it, I'm not big about, you know, Hef's son really handling things and Christy Hefner's really working on some other projects and all, but I mean, she's still dealing Playboy Enterprises, but the magazine is not what it once was. So anyway, let's look into what they did. So they're saying that the late Hugh Hefner used and traded young women like commodities and that his mythology of Playboy as a progressive outgrowth of the sexual revolution and bold expression of feminism was largely a charade. That's what they're trying to prove in this thing. The woman lured in by the excitement of Playboy magazine arriving in 1953 may have shocked, may have been shocked by the sleazy reality of the enterprise at the height of its power in the 60s and 70s. But who today still buys a sales pitch that Playboy and Hef, who died in 2017, were all about celebrating the girl next door? It's still adult entertainment. Now we're not. I'm not going to go and judge that everything in adult entertainment was was all perfectly wonderful and above level. We know it wasn't. Listen, I got the work. In 2005 and 2006, I got to work on a radio network, a podcast radio network early in this day called Why Not Radio. And we focused on various issues when it came to all that. And, you know, Playboy was associated with adult.com. And 2005, 2006, Playboy and Penthouse were still quite prominent and getting their magazines out and people were still buying them because digital was just getting itself started. The HD craze of getting really high definition pictures online and be able to easily download them or view them online it was just starting to get there so jpegs the real high end part of that was just getting started and then also trying to watch streaming video in hd that was the other part that had not gotten there yet but we were working towards it at that time so they mentioned the story about Rampant drug use, the alleged predations of older men, including Bill Cosby, Peter Nygaard, and other luminaries, the travails of gullible young women, and Playboy's broken promises to protect their interests and bodies are recounted via exclusive interviews with insiders, many of whom share their stories for the first time. But look. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This was done and produced after Hefter's death. You know, there are people that could have been there to kind of justify or validate what's going on with what happened, but all these stories are being told well after they happened. You know, I mean, you want to talk about Dorothy Stratton. You want to talk about Anna Nicole Smith. That's been a long time since their deaths. And whatever happened to them leading up to things, that's a different thing to talk about. But we waited until now to talk about this. And why are we waiting until now? But there's a couple of hours of archival footage from inside the cult-like environs of the mansions and clubs. Docuseries series actually skillfully depicts America's fluctuating and moral standards from era to era and Playboy's response to the shifts. Listen, they were a part of it. The musical part of the culture, the sexual revolution, yes. The problem is the sexual revolution was progressive for its time, but now... We're in an anti-sexual revolution. We have modern women and women right now that are both at odds with each other instead of trying to come together and make love. And they're not, that's not happening anymore. There's a real predilection about sex and marriage and just the way that things are that now women, some cases, modern women feel like, well, they're independent. They do not need men in their lives. You know, they look down upon guys that will look at women as sexual objects, which was always a thing, but now it's so much more to a point that it's not even so much that you look down on the fact that men would look at women in what would be in gratifying poses that would be arousing their senses and arousing their members. But now it's a thing where, no, we have to look at the beauty of other things, of people of different races, genders, persuasions. It's not just, you know, different women of different color anymore. Now it's just everything. You you need to gratify and praise and look at the body of women that might not have become women at the beginning. That's a hard thing for some people to go ahead and get their minds wrapped around, things like that. But nobody's doing that. I mean, you know, you have this change where it's a puritanistic, kind of a hypocritical, sanctimonious type of feel. But that's being done because... Then if people play that card, the cancel culture card, when they play that and they make it impossible for you to, you know, say that anything you did in the past could be acceptable. I mean, really, if you look at anybody, what they said and what they did 20, 30 years ago, yeah, it's all going to get shot down now. It's just a matter of can they find the proof that it happened and they can they use it to where the person in cancel culture is going to get taken down. 
The bottom line is, even if Hugh Hefter got this anyway, he would have never gotten taken down. I think he was too strong for cancel culture. He had already done what he'd done. Like, he, that was it. His reputation was done. I don't know if he was necessarily happy with what he did in terms of, you know, he might have lived the lifestyle as the play, as the the bachelor, and he got himself married a bunch of times, and they didn't work out well, and he lost a lot of money from those. But really, I mean, you know, I don't know how much happiness he really got. Probably a lot of moments he enjoyed, but I think overall, I don't think it was a, a life that I would want to have myself. Like, I would want to just enjoy something like that, you know, in bits and pieces, but not an overall lifestyle like that. I don't think anybody could do that, but I don't take away what he did for what Playboy means as a brand and what Playboy means in terms of what it did in terms of commentary, in terms of politics in some cases, in terms of what it did for the cannabis industry and the support it had for various causes and for women. If you don't believe it, that's fine. But I think they did try to do something to help women in certain ways. It's just that, of course, as a man, I'm going to think the way I do where, you know, women being empowered. I think there's a way that women do get empowered by, you know, being able to showcase their beauty in your youth. And that's what was being done here. I didn't care for like the, the more swankier and I'm not swanky, the more sleazier, you know, hardcore kind of stuff like that, like a, a hustler, or a penthouse would put, I, mean, I didn't care about that. I thought Playboy was more or less somewhat classy. It was still artistic in my thought process of how they put together what they put out there. And, you know, for the most part, you'd see women that were very much natural in their natural state, their natural nudity. And it was, I thought it was depicted pretty well. And I thought they did a pretty good job of picking women. Playmates of the month and the year, you know, there wasn't many, were very, there I don't think there were any that I thought that were not that good looking, that were not very attractive. It's in the same way I look at the way that Miss Universe is, where Miss Universe really does depict youth beauty confidence and empowerment and i think it does that and i almost kind of wish that playboy and miss universe were kind of the same vein but they don't like to do that so the story from la times i'm reading from does talk about that you know they they kind of go on the the way of using later or additional episodes to grapple with the fallout from new developments it's now standard practice so they're talking about surviving r kelly the reckoning and i'll be gone in the dark Bearing the lead as Secrets of Playboy does as a disservice to those who come forward to claim they were trafficked by the evil empire and raped by the creep in charge. But this is all after the fact. And if there were cases to be had, I mean, there's enough women out there that they took down R. Kelly. Why couldn't they have done the same thing to Hugh Hefner? Was he so powerful that during, you know, I mean, during the uh, Time's Up phase, I mean, he missed that part, but would he have would he have gone through that and would he have survived it? I don't know. But we'll never know to find out. But it's unfortunate that the Time's Up campaign, the movement, came so late. It shouldn't have happened as late as it did. This should have happened much sooner. Let's just put it like that. But even then, that movement got hijacked. And the original intent of letting women speak up about their abuse mental emotional physical sexually violated trafficked all these things this is not good this is not right but i want to know if the, what was really done about it so 
they make to mention about how Heifer remains the pipe smoking cat we've already known for the most of the series. His appetite for sex with everyone and everything appears to be his greatest indiscretion. During a segment about wild orgies of the mansion, the ex-girlfriend says that Heifer consistently enjoyed the company of one reluctant male lover, a bombshell that's never explored, and that he also allegedly hosted parties called pig nights. So we're just going tabloidistic with the stories here and they're unverified. Undoc- I mean, they don't have the documentation to say anything. There's, it's just speculation. Well, it makes good for a documentary, but is it true or not? I mean, it doesn't make much of a difference. Look, Hugh Hefter was going to be ridiculed for a long time. And the farther along in his career, you know, he really was exploiting himself and the girls around him because it was to help promote Playboy. You know, I don't think it was so much to be said when we saw Playboy After Dark. And there was a different style where 60s, 70s were all different. And then once we got to the 80s with Cable, and then after that, it's really where everything kind of came up was when he started having the reality show. The Girls Next Door lasted 92 episodes over five seasons. It was an inside peek of what goes on inside the Playboy Mansion. The three main girlfriends were Holly Madison, Bridget Marquardt, and Kendra Wilkinson. Holly Madison will always be forever the best looking of the bunch and always the one I like the most. Just personal opinion on my part. So then there's also the stories of former Playmate and director of promotions, Mickey Garcia, past girlfriends of Hefner's, including Holly Madison, Bridget Marquardt, and Theodore. Uh, Sonia Theodore, which is one of his exes, Then there's others, personal valet for Hefner, Stefan Tettenbaum, bunny mother P.J. Maston, Playboy Mansion West resident Jennifer Seg- Seg- Seginor, the doctor's daughter, and describing an environment in which women who wanted to become Playmates in the month had to have sex with Hefner and they were passed around to his friends like human party favors. Then we talk about Dorothy Stratton, the 1980 Playmate who was later killed by her husband. And... They also said that if they refuse Hefner's advances, they were allegedly raped. But then there are others that are coming in to help, you know, make points of what was being said. There's also being said more about what was going on when it comes to Don Cornelius, a Playboy Club VIP, the host of Soul Train, the creator of Soul Train, former executives of Playboy and Hefner's inner circle of lecherous friends who overshadowed the Playboy Chiefs' own actions for the most of the series. And Maston alleged that Cornelius invited two bunnies from the Los Angeles location to a party at his home where they disappeared for days. When they resurfaced, they said they had been held captive and repeated, raped repeatedly by Cornelius. And that Cornelius was allowed back in the Playboy Club the following week. You know, if this was so bad going on, why did? It, how come nobody ever came out and cause the accusations to come to light. Why is it all now? And the, the most important thing is, is it really making a difference now? It just feels like just something sleazy happened to the Playboy Mansion, and that's it. The Playboy Mansion's not even around anymore. It's been sold. Whatever happened before, there's no evidence they're going to get out of that. And we're hearing a lot of talk. Now, what I will believe is that I think there were some women that were used as sex workers for Hollywood, Hollywood rich and powerful. I agree. I do believe that happened. I believe Playboy might've had a spot with that, but that would be also the people that came into the mansion. I don't know if it was so much the Playboy organization, Playboy enterprises or who was there, 
you know, one of the people I got to work with worked in community relations for Playboy for a number of years in the mid-80s, Paxton Quigley. I helped produce a show with her on Cannabis Radio called High Society. And I don't think she had a bad thing to say about Hugh Hefner, Christy Hefner, and the rest of the Playboy team. And even after that, I mean, people still wanted to work with Playboy. You still see people that were, you know, the merchandise was out there. The channel's still out there. Everything else is going on. They had their own radio show. I think that the real thing is that it's going to come from the figurehead, from Hefner himself, and the people he probably surrounded himself by, who, in some cases, when you're going to put some men that are going to be in that kind of sodomistic environment, yeah, they're going to probably go ahead and bend the rules. They're going to probably try to go too far. And they get a little manipulating. They might get very, you know, misogynistic and might things happen. So that I don't think they're too far from what they're saying and that could have very well happened but there's a lot that's being said and the show airs on mondays on annie secrets of playboy so there's that and the shots being taken on i just don't think it should be anything where the playboy organization should get the shots for it you know they can only be so susceptible or punished for the sins of the maker the mogul that actually created it of which many men, you know, could look at him as a role model. And I think there were a lot of good things that Playboy has done, regardless of what you think about the magazine was and what was done in the, in the mansion. Because that's the thing. They're not talking about anything about the magazine and what was being done to operate the magazine. What they're talking about is the mansion, the clubs, and what the girls did and what they were subjected to by the men that were there. We don't know what else there was. So, I mean, I'm not going to completely, you know, I'm not disputing much of what they're saying about that. It's just, it sucks. They're going to just, this is all being brought up to now. And it's so late after Hefner's passing that this makes, doesn't really make a dent. Like, you know, this is just, it's going to be out there, but does this really make a difference when it comes to taking care of issues of sex trafficking or people or women that are being raped or being tortured or anything like that? Like, is it really making much of a difference at all? I don't think it does. And that's where I think people need to realize that this documentary series doesn't hold too much. It's a story that goes for an older audience as well on A&E. But, you know, it doesn't make much of a difference. It's not going to make any difference. And the adult industry is basically dead right now anyway. It's like everybody's on their own creators right now with OnlyFans and this and that. And with so many people being behind the, behind the internet, there's the, the physical, you know, interactions hollywood would still have their issues anyway we know that's not being that's that's something that's never going to get fixed because the ultimate bigger problem is in hollywood there's a lot of corruption there's a lot of manipulation a lot of narcissism a lot of things going on there that never get reported but we know there's some things that are not good in hollywood they just don't get talked about they're get they're shoved under the rug but you know what they like they don't have a they don't have a problem with times up and the, the movement for women to go and speak out about those that have attacked and have assaulted them and have done them wrong and have emotionally scarred them or physically scarred them for life. So I feel bad for those women. If they feel that's what they feel and, that, and that's actually the truth, I'm you know, it sucks. But there has to be something where people have to be there as a support system. And when something happens like this, you got to be able to go and show that there's proof and the legal system's there. Somebody had to have come out. Listen, at least Bill, I mean, Bill Cosby also got 
convicted. I don't know why I didn't hold sooner, but the problem is that there were issues with statute of limitations and with the stories that were being put out where, you know, it wasn't a full collective of women that are willing to put themselves on the line to, you know, accuse and to help convict those that have done them collectively wrong. If there's anything that that whole time something has done, that women need to go ahead and just, if they're able to go and speak out and know that they have a support system that will protect them and keep them safe from what's going to be done, I'd rather not hold that back. I don't know. I'm, it's a man's point of view. Maybe I'm wrong, but somebody might go ahead and call me out on it. Who knows? Another story that got into the into the limelight also that did not go well was Sam Elliott talking about Power of the Dog and the movie that came out. And he called it, slamming it a piece of shit, the power for being basically too gay. And so Colt Delbeek of the HuffPost actually wrote about this. And right now, Sam Elliott is currently starring in Paramount's Yellowstone prequel, 1883, he went after the Netflix Western, which is the front runner to win front runner to win Best Picture trophy at the Oscars later this month. He spoke on Mark Maron's WTF podcast on Monday, and then he says, "You want to talk about that piece of shit?" And the movie centered around Phil Burbank, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, a hardened and sexually repressed ranch owner in 1920s Montana, as a major misstep for the genre. And he said this quote. There was a full fucking page ad out in the LA Times and there was a review, not a review, but a clip. And it was talking about the evisceration of the American myth. And I thought, what the fuck? What the fuck? During a bizarre comparison between Jane Campion's vision of cowboys and Chipperdale dancers wearing bow ties and not much else, he added then, quote, that's what all these fucking cowboys in that movie look like. They're all running around in chaps and no shirts. There's all these allusions to homosexuality throughout the fucking movie. That's what the movie's about. And now the movie, by critics, they, they've praised it for how it thoughtfully deconstructs toxic notions of masculinity and repress homosexuality against the backdrop of the American West. The movie got Oscar nominations of a plenty with nods for stars Christian Dunst, Cody Smith McPhee, and Cumberbatch, as well as a history making honor for Campion. And then he goes after Gene Campion, which, you know, many critics will say is a brilliant filmmaker. She shot the film in her native country, New Zealand. And then he says this, what the fuck does this woman from down there know about the American West? Why the fuck did she shoot this movie in New Zealand and call it Montana? And see, this is the way it was. That fucking rubbed me the wrong way. And then he said, boy, when I fucking saw that, I thought, what the fuck? Where are we in this world today? And the writer for HuffPost says, apparently we're still stuck in the backwards idea that LGBTQ people never existed in the American West. We don't know what there was in the American West. But I don't get what the whole idea of, you know, the Westerns deciding to go and go away from, you know, kind of the traditional point. Look, for some people, Brokeback Mountain is a movie that might be appreciated for what it's done. And, you know, Look, they're gonna you're gonna take different tropes, different genres of movies, and you're gonna think you're gonna get certain social issues that are gonna be reconstructed or done. Like, you know, you see how you see period pieces now, and you're seeing a different representation of who's on camera representing a time from before. 
you know, they, they, there's a, or come up with a revisionist history, a rewriting of history, if you will, on screen. So this is fiction. Take it as a fiction. This is not based on anything that's really out there. I mean, the truth is, as far as I know, this movie is not, it's supposed to be based in 1920s Montana, but as far as I know, I don't know this, this, this is based on a book with any real documentation that I don't know. When I look up the book and I, or let me look up the story here. Is there a book based on this or is this just what they put out? Well, this is based on the book, by the way. So a 1967 book by Thomas Savage dealing with two very different brothers who live on a ranch in Montana the events following the marriage of George. Uh, the whole story comes along. It's a modern reworking story uh, of the biblical story of Cain and Abel with darkness to spare. And so Thomas Savage, by the way, according to the New York Times, who wrote the story, is that he says here, well, they, they make mention of that Thomas Savage was a closeted gay man who critically acclaimed fiction drew on his formative years living and working on a Montana ranch. The book is a novel of the rest and an afterward written for a reprint. Annie Prulu observes that something aching and lonely and terrible of the West is caught forever in Savage's pages. And so it predates Prull's tragic love story broke back mountain about two hired hands who discover each other one summer in 1963 while herding sheep. They have sex and fall in love while believing themselves invisible. It's based on a book. So if Sam Elliott has anything to say about it. You also have to mention the fact that, listen, it's just done as a book. You know, the fact that she did it in New Zealand, for whatever reason, it might have been, you know, just easier to shoot there, whatever kind of cost or whatever they had to go and do because they couldn't shoot in Hollywood. Maybe at the time when they did the principal photography, right? So the thing is, it's based on the book. So the book's out there. I guess people can go and read it. And the story's out there. So, like, he got upset about that. And he looked at it. But, like, I'm going to look at the fact that, okay, I knew it was based on a book. I figured it had to be that. I didn't even watch this movie yet. But I can understand that's where it's coming from. So a Western that doesn't is not his cup of tea. Well, we already have Birkback Mountain as a president. This comes out. It's the same idea. And, you know, I'm not mentioning that it might. I mean, for me, I don't feel like some movie that I'm necessarily into because it's not so much of a Western that I'm used to. Like, it's not Magnificent Seven. It's not for a few dollars more. It's not The Good and Bad and the Ugly. It's not Unforgiven. It's not Tombstone. It's not Silverado. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not one of those movies. So... It's just the Western. It's a different Western. And it's not one made for me. And it's not one, definitely not made for Sam Elliott. So I got a few other stories I want to bring up now. We're going to get out of movies. We're going to move out a little bit. TikTok. I mentioned this on a one on the podcasting episode that went up on Monday of this week. I want to go and take a look at that. I made a lot of mentions right there. TikTok now ups their maximum video link to 10 minutes. Should YouTube be worried about this? And I brought up the idea that YouTube should, because if Billboard MRC, if you know radio stations are following along and music becomes more prominent and the copyright issues are not a factor when it comes to TikTok and putting music up there, you know, are we going to see where TikTok is not just a place where you discover new music through clips of people dancing or whatever, then you're going to find out, oh, the music's going to go up there. The music videos will go up there and might be exclusively posted on TikTok.
Last last summer, they allowed up to three minutes in length, and now they're allowing 10 minutes. Now, YouTube is still the most world's largest streaming video streaming platform. Two billion logged in users playing music on its service every month. TikTok has over 1 billion global monthly active users. And by 2022, it should be up to 1.5 million projected. So TikTok now looks like more of a serious competitor to YouTube. And they've both been going after each other with making changes. The other thing too is that YouTube and TikTok are competing for advertising revenue. So the more time for content, the more advertising revenue they can get. YouTube generated over $8 billion in advertising revenues in quarter four, 2021, $28 billion through all of 2021. TikTok earned over $12 billion in 2022 and $4 billion in revenues last year. Oh, excuse me. Was $4 billion last year. They're expected to make $12 billion this year. That's the idea. And then there were a couple of notes I mentioned in the story on the Winamount podcasting series, but I'll bring it over here right now. <clears throat> that TikTok has been able to go ahead and identify over 70 artists that broke on the platform since 2020 that have signed to major label deals. In December 2021, TikTok revealed that approximately 430 songs passed 1 billion video views as TikTok sounds last year, three times more than 2020. And TikTok knows the view counts don't exist in a vacuum, but directly transmit the commercial success for trending songs and artists with 175 songs over that that trended on the platform in 2021, according to the charting of the Billboard Hot 100, twice the number that charted in 2020. And so what I think is going to happen is the record labels are going to have to realize, hey, you want your music to get in front of people? Then you put it on TikTok. You know, you release the song on TikTok, you put it on YouTube, so you can always, because the difference will be that with the 10-minute videos, you know, TikTok needs to make sure to work on a better way for searching for content. So if they're not just going to look at the normal FYP, they should be able to go ahead and search for content in a library, some way, shape, or form like YouTube for those people to go ahead and catch those 10-minute videos. Because it would kind of suck if the FYP only just flips up and you can see 10-minute videos, and then you're kind of like, oh boy, what are we going to do now? You can still skip through it, but that's part of the thing. You want to have that controllable part of being able to watch TikTok videos anyway, which is something they've got to do. They're going to make the videos longer. Just saying. A couple other stories I want to bring up here in terms of radio and podcasting. Let's go to that real quick. There's a story that came out from Club about Clubhouse and Variety.com about how Clubhouse can keep pace in the social audio race. Well, you know what? That was last year. Clubhouse is like a non-factor. And what, from what I see, Twitter Spaces has done much better for some people. And some people just found their niche of doing that. But Clubhouse, it's just no, there's no organization to it. Unless you have a proper moderator and you have people that are really good at being succinct and doing things. LinkedIn just basically just put out their own Clubhouse-like offering audio events, allowing users to broadcast audio only during scheduled live events. And then there's the Mark Cuban Backfireside app, which allows broadcasters to users to broadcast video or audio only live. They're looking to raise about $25 million launching in October. And Facebook is paying influencers now five-figure checks to host sessions on its live audio rooms. And this goes back to the cool down of Clubhouse. So they were the disruptor, but they did not 
do anything to help keep them up. Because look, I can look at the downloads from what they did. VIP, the VIP platform of Variety reports how Clubhouse had a couple of spurts of downloads in January and May of 2021. So it was when the I os rollout happened and then the android rollout happened and then after that it's lowed down to about a million downloads a month and that's it and the financial times reported that clubhouse co-founder paul davison appeared unbothered by copycat attempts from big tech players and remains adamant that the lull is just part of the typical peak and trough life cycle of a social startup so they're going to just go along as it goes so they also talk about there's not many people that are really much into trying to make where the clubhouse is going to be able to make money. There was a report from The Verge in late September 2021 that said six creators from Creator First said no brand sponsored them before the end of the program and that clubhouse did not turn their shows into profitable ventures. So there was a Creator First accelerator program where these shows got $5,000 per month for three months. But then, you know, you're not getting to see that for these influencers. But then what happened was Clubhouse was being expanded to Brazil and India for their Creator First initiative. And Clubhouse should focus on helping fund fewer but bigger influencers. And none of the show's inaugural USA Creator First initiative program were headed by someone of the caliber of, say, like a Molly Cyrus who hosted a session on live audio rooms last summer for Facebook or Jay Leno, who hosted an interactive show on Fireside in November. So these are the issues they're working on right now. Even Amazon's working on its own Clubhouse competitor. Spotify has their live audio platform, Green Room, that's announcing a new slate of shows in November. So, yeah, what's happening, too, is all the social media places, obviously, if you get live engagement, that's what's being more important, to get more people to watch. Now, we get the part of that. Even I now have to jump into some of that because in Cannabis Radio, we now have a Facebook Live show where we're doing that. So it's like, oh, okay, we'll do this. Let's see what happens. So we're trying. One story that really caught my eye and I thought was really interesting was from Sean Ross at Radio Insight. And I always like catching one of his articles because he is one of the few guys that does do some real good job of trying to analyze music radio today and where it's going wrong. So he wrote a story and talked about the radio destroying the recurrent. The recurrent is a song that was a hit prominently, but then, you know, it's a song that's still good enough to go and play. It's like a gold record. So what happens is the song, you have a song that goes in rotation, a new song, and it's up there for, you know, say 10 to 12 weeks after it's charted on the, on the charts when it comes to um, Billboard or if it's charts, whatever it is. What happens is streaming will get its initial run of a new song. Um, let me try to take an example for a song like, um, let's do any Ed Sheeran song. Let's try Shivers. So the song initially would get some some spurt. It got streaming a little bit because it was released as a single. Then it got a bump because of the album bump. And then eventually, about 10 or 12 weeks later, well, maybe not so much Ed Sheeran because they would fast track one of his records on. But let's say Gale, ABCFU. Initially came out as a single, and then it got some traction. And some songs based on streaming do better on charts in other countries, like in Europe or UK or whatever, or Australia. But then when it comes to America, you know, it takes about eight to 12 weeks for a song like that to finally make it on the charts there. And then even then, it's a gradual move up for a new artist to put a song out there and eventually go up to the top. Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license did the same thing. 
for it, for it to, you know, Billboard got out of the number one pretty quickly in January of last year. But then after that, you're looking at, oh, okay, how long did it take for radio to finally catch up on it? It took it to about April or May. I mean, the start of Lee Rodrigo's real jump off was in the spring. And then by then we got to the album and then that was it. By like what, March, you get the album and then it just goes all the way to the top. It just goes crazy. But the next time around, Olivia Rodrigo's new album will come out whenever she gets it done. Then you already know, oh, she's going to be fine. They're going to fast track her songs because she's already worked in all their shows and she's already gotten into the mix of like the label's going to get her pushed in the right spot. So when she comes out, she'll be just like Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran or The Weeknd or Post Malone. They will fast track her records up. And then those songs after, you know, they might have new songs that are coming out, but the songs that were hits before, say like six months or a year ago or five years ago, those are called recurrents. So now there's a rise of recurrent as a programming concept that's now heavily tied to call out research. This is something that's happened for many years where certain songs were still so popular, you can still keep playing it. Like here's a best example of a recurrent. When you still hear the weekend's blinding lights, it's over a year and a half later, but it's still doing very well. It still charts, so people will still listen to it. Over the last 35 years, he writes, there's been an understanding that the recurrents were among the most important or most effective songs on a radio station, blurring the lines between current and recurrent. But there's no intent here to dispute the value of a recurrent or that some listeners only really bond with songs about the time that they would normally reach recurrent. But now we're getting two songs that they just don't go away. Dua Lipa's Levitating and Heat Waves by Glass Animals. Glass Animals Heat Waves, that was a 2019 song. And it, I remember hearing it like two years ago. But this song now is like in the top 10. And right now it's still in the top 10 again because of radio. So in the past, older songs that endured in a constant rotation where you would hear the song almost like every two hours, every three hours. They were meant to be unicorns, not a regular occurrence. Recurrence that returned back to that constant play it over and over on a radio station were meant to be secret weapons, not the regular spackle for a soft week. Another song that's still playing so much, Stay by Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber. That song was, what, early last year, last spring. And even Kid Leroy's Without You in some stations, they serve to remind people how few hits there are now. And that's what he makes the point of. There are not enough new songs out there to satisfy. But that's because there's only a particular inventory that radio stations that are contemporary hit radio, they're going to choose from. In the late 80s to early 90s, when you had that run of Prince, Janet Jackson, Madonna, Wham, and all these other artists, that those big power artists were kind of not putting out as much music or might not have been doing as well because there was so many years on top. Then these radio stations that were out there, you'd have stations that were playing rhythmic music and they started going into freestyle and to dance and to hip hop. They started, you know, expanding what CHR was, what contemporary radio was, what top 40 radio was because the charts represented that. But that's because CHR is going to stay like it is. They're not going to go top 40, which is why they should be a top 40 format. Like I can tell you, there's one station right now I listen to that does actually do a really good job of kind of playing, you know, the best of what there is today, current. It's a station called KFTZ in 
Idaho Falls, Idaho. It's, I mean, it's not some, some super exciting station, but you know what they do? They play a good mix of music that is streaming, strong, and then other songs. Like, that's just what they do. It's incredible. Like, right now, I'm looking at their playlist. They just played Adele, Oh My God, Meet Me at Our Spot, Anxiety, Telecom Willow. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno, which is not being played by most radio stations, but it's the number one song in the country for, what, six weeks in a row? Good for you, Olivia Rodrigo, which is like number one and still on most hit radio stations. Let It Go by James Bay, which is like an off-the-wall track that doesn't get played at all. Bad Things, which is a recurrent that's from a few years ago. Let You Down, NF, and also a recurrent from a few years ago. Smoke Another Window, Fancy Like, which now is a remix with Kesha, and that's with Walker Hayes. That's out there now. They got Justin Bieber's Ghost, Big Energy by Lotto, which is a new song that just started making the radio now. Save Your Tears the Weekend. You got That's What I Want, Little Nas Sex, which is number one now on like most top 40 radio stations around the country. Closer Featuring Her by uh, Sweetie, Closer Featuring Her is a new song that just actually released last week, and that song's playing now on this station. Don't Start Now, Dua Lipa, Glass Animals, Heat Wave, Wild Post Malone, She's All I Want to Be, Tate McRae. That's a new song that charted two weeks ago on billboard and only started getting played like in the uk and they're putting that as a top 20 song right now but in the u.s you couldn't find that song good luck so that's what they're doing woman by doja cat which is an off track because doja cat songs right now have been you right and need to know that have been very popular now in the last couple of months on radio these things we're looking at there's plenty of music to play there's plenty of new music out there on Spotify. We find it. I find it all the time. When I change my playlists, one I do for Spotify is called Mega Miami. And that's like doing, there might be a little bit of pop in there, but there's mostly hip, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of R&B, mostly reggaeton and EDM. And like there's dance music that can be played as pop, but they don't do that here. And there's plenty of that music to play. Like if I had to put a station together, I could easily put a CHR station together, but it'd be a top 40 station. And you would find new songs that are out there with great melodies, great grooves, good singers, all of that. You could be incorporating a radio station right now, but the CR station, CHR stations, they don't want to do that. That's not their thing. They want to just, you know, they want to do what they're going to do. That's it. Okay, I want to go ahead and we're a little bit over. I want to just go and get one more story in. It's about Spotify and Amazon looking to spark the next podcast bidding war from Variety. This is a story I held over from last week I wanted to talk about, but I'll bring it up here. And there might be more mergers and acquisitions from the likes of Spotify and Amazon looking to make bids for UK podcasting company Audio Boom, among others. Audio Boom does their own slate of podcasts, around 25, but then they also have a content management system to help a much larger slate of podcast creators with distribution to podcast platforms like Spotify. They also offer monetization and analytics. They also connect advertisers like NBC and Dell with the podcasts it distributes. Where there's a lot of those like that. There's Red Circle out there, there's Spreaker, there's uh, Podbeam, all these others that are out there. And so there's that part that's coming in. And monthly podcast list continues to grow year by year. And it's just exponentially growing now, especially in the last five years. Spotify's already been in this kind of game. They bought Megaphone. They bought Ringer. They just bought Chartable and Pod Sites. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Amazon paid $80 million for the rights to Smart Less. They've been airing new episodes of the podcast on Amazon Music and Wondery one week before going to other platforms like Audible. 
and Audible, obviously the Alpha Original podcasts that weren't which weren't accessible on Amazon Music. But the Variety article here, they talk about they should combine Amazon Music and Audible for their podcast co- content. Right now, among pod, popular podcast listening platforms, YouTube is still the most. 44% of respondents, when they were asked to identify which they use the most listen to podcasts, Spotify 30%, Apple Podcasts 28%, Pandora 18%, Amazon Music 17%, Google Podcasts 15 iHeartRadio 15, Audible 10, NPR 1 10, Stitcher 5, Patreon 4. There you go. So that was another story that's coming in. Keep an eye on that. Just like other media companies, you get other companies to acquire. So Spotify and Amazon are definitely going to be in the run for that. That's the show for this week. Enjoy the Batman this weekend. And if you love it, tell me about it. A lot of different ways to reach out to me. King of Podcasts at Yahoo.com. We want to leave a message there. You can also go ahead and hit me up on social media at King of Podcasts. Just look for it. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening in. Finding the show as you always do. Until next week, remember that content is king and the control of your content is in your hands. Thank you for listening to the Broadcasters Podcast. Find all the links to subscribe to the show by going to broadcasterspodcast.com. And don't forget to check out the King of Podcasts wrestling program, The Wrestling Is Real Podcast, exclusively at wrestlingisreal.com.